Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and you found the channel that loves atheists. And today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the deconversion encounter of Rhett and Link um, from Good Mythical Morning and the podcast Ear Biscuits that I covered on this show last year and see what it looks like a year out as they have said a few more things about their um, spiritual experience and their exploration of um, what they believe and what their worldview is now. And so we're going to take a look at that and make some comments. Uh, I don't pretend to think that Rhett and Link will ever see this, but if you do, I just want you to know that nothing I'm saying here is intended to be offensive to you as an individual, and I hope it doesn't come across that way. This is about the issues, and I think you raised some very, very important issues to discuss. So we're going to take a look at some of those today. And in order to do that, the last we left off, we heard that Rhett and Link were um, had, had decided that they weren't going to identify as Christian anymore, and that they... Um, I, I think they were somewhat hopefully agnostic, I think is how they put it. And they're very open to the idea of God. There's nothing unreasonable, I don't think, in their opinion about the idea that God might exist. It's just that they find some of the biblical stuff not to be convincing. And so uh, when we pick up now, they have had their Christmas experience, or at the time, I guess, when they recorded this, they were approaching Christmas and trying to decide, you know, how do we celebrate Christmas now? Or what is Christmas like? Maybe they're just sharing it with their audience and they've already got it figured out now that we no longer identify as Christians. And it's a very interesting show. But I want to say something before we get too far into this, in case most people don't watch very far. And that is for people who are like Rhett and Link, who are very open to the idea that God exists, not not just in the way that atheists might say, well, you know, I'm open to it. I'm open to being convinced. But people who might really genuinely be on the fence and may be hospitable toward the position that God, a God that would be consistent with the Christian God in some measure might exist. Well, I just want to say something straight out of the gate that I, I, uh, I think might be helpful to you. And I just want you to consider. Um, I, I just want to throw out a simple possibility that I find plausible. However you think God made man. The result is a race of people who are very interested in relationship and community. If God intended to create a world with a race of people in it who long for relationship like us, it seems likely that God would want to have relational communication with that race. A quick survey of the world reveals a man at the center of human history who claimed that was his purpose for coming. And by the way, scholars universally agree that Jesus thought of himself as God's special agent to bring about the kingdom. He just happens to be the most influential human being who has ever lived, and his message has, has pretty well reached the entire world. So what I'm saying is, if God created us to be relational, God would likely want to communicate with us at some point during human history. If you look for where he might have done that, Jesus is the most obvious choice. I just want to say that at the beginning because while I don't know that that convinces anybody else, I find it personally very convincing to think we seem to be, uh, uh, however you think God 
created us, however we arrived here, whether it's evolution or special creation or whatever you want to do with that, however we got here, if God intended us to be here, people like us who are interested in community and relationship and communication, then it would seem that God did that. It seems plausible, likely not unreasonable to think that God did that because he wanted to have some sort of a relationship with mankind. And if you look throughout human history for where God might have done that, the most obvious choice is Jesus. You say, well, you're just saying that because you're a Christian. If you're a Hindu, Hindu, you'd say something else. If you're a Muslim, you'd say something else. That's all fine. But the fact of the matter is Jesus is without question the single human being who has made the biggest impact, never traveled far from his own country, never wrote anything down as far as we know, and yet has had this staying impact on the world and claimed that he was speaking on behalf of the one true God here as God's special eschatological agent. I think that's very powerful if you're a person who already thinks God exists or are very open um, in a robust way to the existence of God. All right. So having said that, we're going to take a look very specifically at some of the things that go on in this video. We're going to play some clips from Rhett and Link, and I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I hope that you find it helpful. Everything they say about their experience of Christmas, because that's, again, basically what this video is about. How do we, as now non-Christians, deal with the holidays, specifically Christmas? You know, what, what do we do about that exactly? And everything they say about Christmas, I mean, it's all within the context of Christmas, but it also seems very applicable. And I don't think there's anything, I don't think they would think there's anything inappropriate about me saying that everything they say about Christmas seems applicable to the experience of Christianity throughout the, throughout our lives in general, and not just at Christmas. And what I think you'll find from two non-Christians is an incredibly strong reason to believe that Christianity is true, and some very poor reasons to believe that Christianity is not true. And I hope that you do find that to be the case. So uh, we're going to play the first clip and we're going to jump right in. And what Rhett begins, Rhett is is the guy with um, the, the brown hair or the red hair. And Link is the guy with the darker hair. And what's, uh, what's going on here is Rhett is going to explain that he has gone through several stages in his life so far as it relates to celebrating Christmas. And as I say, I think this relates to life in general, but he's going to lay out those stages real quick for you right here. Okay, stage one is Christmas when you're a Christian. And, and when I say Christian, I mean a Bible-believing, in our case, evangelical Christian that takes the Christmas story, 100% literal truth, um, that's stage one. Stage two is a, is a Christian who is struggling with doubt, engaging with Christmas, Stage three is someone who would no longer call themselves a Christian engaging with Christmas. And you might think, isn't that the all three stages? I think for me, there's a fourth stage, which is. Well, but, and you can maybe be suspenseful about that. There's a fourth, not, there's a fourth stage. Okay. I'm not gonna say, yeah, I'm just gonna say it's the way that I am hoping to engage with Christmas now. Okay, so you've got there four stages. You might think, well, what's that last stage, right? That was a good teaser for them to get you to watch the whole thing. And so there they are. He's going to talk to us about what it was like as a Christian, as a doubting Christian, as no longer a Christian, and whatever that fourth stage is. So let's go ahead and jump into another little caveat they use. Now, this is something that Rhett said at the beginning of, or sometime during the initial episode when he talked about his deconstruction. Um, I may say deconversion, uh, they say deconstruction, whatever. Um, similar similar idea. And so here's something he said there. There and he says it here. So just as a matter of housekeeping, I want to address it. Nothing that I'm going to say uh, 
or I'll speak for Link as well, is meant to be prescriptive. This isn't not advice. This isn't how we think you should approach Christmas. This isn't what we think is right <laughs> for you. This is our process. This is just our personal story of what it was like at those different stages. Um, We're pro- you mean, may relate to some of it, you may not. You may disagree with some of the conclusions. I, that's, I'm not trying to, to get you to come to a different conclusion. It's just, this is a story. Okay, now I appreciate that on the one hand because they're, I like that they're not being so forceful, but I, I do wanna say, first of all, I believe him. I, I really do believe, and not everybody has been this charitable, but I really do believe that in the initial video and in Link's video and in this video, they're really just wearing their heart on their sleeve. They're just talking things out. Like, I think I would feel really comfortable there sitting with them talking about all of this. I don't think there's any pretense. I think they're telling me how they really feel. You may feel differently, but that's exactly what I think is going on. However, that doesn't mean that's actually the way this thing plays out in general. When you have a platform, you are being prescriptive whether you want to or not. For most of us, we can remember formative things that people said when we were younger, maybe when we were 13 or 14, and they have a lot of 13, 14 year old listeners and younger and older. But we can all recall things during our formative years when we're trying to figure out what we think about things very early on. Um, And there was someone, uh, perhaps in the entertainment world or some sports figure or some teacher that you had or something who said certain things in in their um, uh, position, uh, having whatever platform they had that did impact you in a powerful way. And you still maybe I can still go back to things like that that people said right now. It still impacts my thinking right now. And so uh, whether you want to have that, whether you want to be prescriptive or not, it comes across as prescriptive because people like you, people trust you, people um, admire you. And so as a result, they want to be like you and, the, and they're taking what you have said and what you have experienced as having a lot of weight to it, um, even if that's not the thing that got you to the position you have right now. I mean, Rhett and Link got to the position they have right now because of their entertainment quality, because they're basically for a lot of the kinds of things you would get in a church youth group somewhere, a lot of silly games and things like that. But, but however you got to this point, now people love you and people will take what you say as prescriptive, even if you don't intend it that way. Anyway, um, let's go on to the next thing. And here's where we begin to look at uh, what exactly their experience was as Christians. So let's let's see what their mentality was about secularism and all those kinds of things during the Christmas season. Again, this relates to the whole year round, I think, ultimately. But as a microcosm at Christmas, here's what they have to say. Like there are Christians who think that and think that Santa is this secular distraction. I didn't think that either. But what I did think is when I would see a Christmas movie, let's say Elf as an example, your best favorite movie. movie. Best movie ever. I could appreciate how awesome of a movie it is, not necessarily my favorite or even in my top 10, but a very solid Christmas movie. I could appreciate it and appreciate uh, all the good principles that it kinda, uh, that it reinforced in the spirit of Christmas. But as a Christian, I would kinda stand aside and say, yeah, that's a real nice story but you guys do know that Jesus is the reason for the season, that the whole point of this holiday is to celebrate the fact that God became a human, came down on our level and gave us a way to be reconciled to him. You do understand that's what's it about. Well, and it's one thing to imply it in all of the the Hollywood Christmas movies, but I mean, a lot of times it's blatantly stated that you know, the reason for the season, or they may put it in different terms, but they'll blatantly say that like, the spirit of Christmas is family. It's it's like good tidings. Right. It's just, you know, it's, it's I'll be home for Christmas. It's getting together, it's just, it, 
It's that type of stuff. And I didn't want people to change their movies. I, w- I wasn't thinking like, you know, Elf would have been a whole lot better if like, you know, if the, what's the Elf's name? You should know this. Will Ferrell. Well, what's his name in the Buddy. movie? If Buddy would have become a Christian during the movie. <laughs> like, I'm not talking about like, I'm, I'm not saying I wanna have like Kirk Cameron type movies, but I still had this sort of judgment in my mind that was like, yeah, you guys almost get it, but you don't really get it. You've created all this uh, holiday accoutrement around Christmas in order to make it seem meaningful, but you've missed the heart of it, which is, this is about Jesus, y'all. And so it's all pointless. It ultimately, you know, if you're gonna miss the heart of it, then all the stuff around it really doesn't mean anything. Okay, now um, I'm gonna say some things that many of you who are not believers are gonna think, well, that's just ridiculous or that's not fair um, or something like that. And I just, I, I wanna say, number one, that I recognize that you're gonna disagree with this, but also you may be surprised to find that I don't think they disagree with me as much. They may disagree with me or how I say it or what I'm ultimately getting at, but I don't think that Rhett and Link disagree with me as much as some of my listeners will, and you'll see that as we get to their further comments in just a few moments. But let's go ahead and, and, and talk a little bit about this. When they were Christians, they, they I, I like this, like they, they weren't, and this is kind of how I was raised, and I think this is how most evangelicals are raised, in fa- if they're in families that really care about these things, is they don't go to the legalism of saying, like, you can't have Santa Claus, or you can't enjoy the Christmas movies, or whatever, you know, Elf is great, whatever, we watch the Christmas story, every year. Um, it's, it's, it's fine. We watch home alone every year. You, you can have the Christmas stories. Nothing wrong with that. Don't suck the fun out of it. Don't ruin cr- the, the fun part of Christmas for your kids. That has to do with our culture. And that is a, an important part of it, the culture in which we're seated. But at the same time, let's not forget why we as Christians celebrate this thing and the meaning that's actually there underneath it all. And what they were getting at is when they were Christians, what they saw happening was that, and we're not, I don't think I played it in the clip, but there's a, there's a part of it where they both agree that like, yeah, the war on Christmas and getting upset because people say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas or whatever. Like that's, that's not, who, that's not really what we care about. Um, and, and I, I kind of relate to that. That's the, the way they express it is kind of where I am, but they did think, but there's a deeper truth here that you guys aren't getting. And you're almost there. Like you get some of the good that like family and, and relationship and, and, uh, forgiving and coming back together and giving people gifts and all those kinds of things. There's a lot of good values, moral values that are there, but what undergirds all of that is the message. The reason that we as Christians celebrate this thing. And that is the, the message of the birth of Christ, whenever he was, you know, whatever time of year he was born, whatever, whatever the, the, point is that that's what we look at and there's a meaning there because ultimately Jesus came to fulfill a role and that was to um, announce the coming of the the gospel message of the coming of the kingdom of God and then to die for our sins and rise again that we might rise again. There's all this meaning that is there that when you rip that story out of it and you try to keep in its place just as he said the accoutrement of the season or whatever that we've done culturally, just the shell of it. All you have left is this big shell, this, this, uh, you know, um, what this, 
gingerbread house that is not real and there's nothing undergirding it that provides it meaning. You know, last year I did an episode that has now been taken off. Um, I think that I uh, use the clips in fair use, but I didn't want to challenge it because I'm just not that type of guy usually. But um, the Joe Rogan show pulled it off. But I was covering an episode where Joe Rogan and um, Sean Carroll were in discussion and they were talking about some of the truths that, that they feel like from a naturalistic perspective, you just kind of have to grit your teeth and go with. And so, for example, um, we have this intuition that we have free will. We don't have free will. So we've got to put something in its place um, that makes up for this impulse that we have free will. So we can call it compatibilism. It's kind of this, you know, we, we you live as though you have free will and you can kind of do whatever you want. You just can't want whatever you want and your actions are determined, but you live as though you have free will. So that's good enough. It's not really free will, but that's fine. Don't worry too much about it. Uh, that causes problems for morality. Morality doesn't seem meaningful anymore. Um, and, and, and there's already problems philosophically with having an objective grounding for that. But you know what? Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll find some sub objective purpose that we think can serve as the grounding, uh, like, uh, you know, the, the flourishing of our species or well-being or something like that. And even though that's subjectively chosen and there's nothing like in the universe that says we should care about others or care about those things, we will choose that. And, and it'll it's not real in a metaphysical sense, but it's, it's good enough. It's the best we can do. And, um, uh, you know, it, it really does look like the universe is designed, but maybe we could sprinkle a little multiverse on that. And it's not. And so it's not really designed. It really looks designed, but it's not really designed in this multiverse stuff. At least mathematically, it could work out. And maybe that makes sense of it. And what I said then was it was kind of like. Uh, Castaway with Tom Hanks and Tom Hanks as you know if you've seen one of the most memorable things about that movie is that he had this volleyball that because he craved real meaningful human um, interaction so much out there alone on the island that he painted a face on this volleyball and uh, you know the the it's it's kind of like we're, we're we're giving it human characteristics so we'll give it eyes and we'll give it a mouth it's not really eyes and it's not really a mouth and and when we get it done we have something that we can use as a stand-in, an icon of sorts for um, real meaning, real human interaction, but it's not real ultimately. It won't last. This is what I think you see Sean Carroll and uh, Joe Rogan doing. Oh, we'll give it some eyes. We'll give it morality. We'll give it a mouth. We'll give it some free will. We'll give it, uh, you know, it, it looks designed, but it, it's not designed. We're going we're gonna to do all these things to try and make up for it. But here's the thing that I said then, and I want to say it again now because I still believe that it's true. Ultimately, the only real goods that were in Wilson was that Wilson was a stand-in, an icon, an analogy for real, actual human interaction. That's what Tom Hanks was craving. And though he got wrapped up in it and, and, and connected to this character, when it floats away on the water and he's crying out to it, he's ultimately crying out for something that is in itself intrinsically worthless. And it's just a volleyball floating in the ocean, man. And it's not really anything deeper than that. And if you pull Jesus out of it and you just leave kind of the trappings of Christmas or in your life in general, if you pull Jesus out of it, but you just hold on to Western values and hopes and dreams and all these kind of things. It's just going to be ultimately in the end a Wilson. It's just a volleyball floating in the ocean, man. There's no deeper meaning. Don't expect to find it here. And it's all just pitily, uh, uh, pitiful indifference. Uh, pitiless indifference, I think Richard Dawkins says. That's what we're left with. 
And so what they're recognizing, or what they recognized when they were Christians, and we're going to get to what they thought after that, is they looked at it and they're like, man, if you take all that out of it, that's fine. You can still have Christmas and we're not going to complain that you're still celebrating Christmas, but you've taken all, you've sucked what was really meaningful out of it. And what you've left is cheap and it doesn't satisfy ultimately. And so I think that's a really important thing to, to, to mention. All right, we're going to move on to more about that. And we're going to take a look at the family and uh, how they actually treated their, how Link actually uh, interacted with his kids. So listen to this. I decided. Uh huh. I think this was a Link decision. It's like, you know what? Our kids are always going to know that Santa is just, is fake. But we're still going to have, we're, we're still going to surprise him with presents on Christmas morning that weren't wrapped and under the tree. There's gonna be some unwrapped stuff that's gonna be there when they run down the stairs. And you know, I still wanna have that scene because mm -hmm. that's it's so exciting and I don't wanna take that away entirely. But when the weatherman is like, we've spotted Santa on the radar, yeah, my, you're like, my kids, that's BS. When Lily's five years old, she, she, she never thought, there was never a point where she thought, and she knew that she wasn't supposed to tell other kids. I'm I'm removing some of the temptation to focus on the wrong thing. It's like remember, we're, we're focusing on Jesus here. We can have the presents, and we're you know the reason why we have the presents is because uh, presents were brought to Jesus because people knew that he was he was God incarnate, and they were they came to worship him as a king, and they gave him gifts. And so, you know, you just try to couch everything through the lens of Jesus, right? That's a Christmas movie for Kirk Cameron to make. <laughs> right, through the lens of Jesus. Uh, and I felt good about that. Okay, now I want you to remember, he says he felt good about that. It felt good. What felt good? Well, if you watch the entire clip and it's linked in the description down below, you'll find out that what, what felt good was in, in telling his kids the truth about Santa, and not helping to foster, you know, the the harm. In most cases, we view it to be a harmless lie in culture about Santa Claus, but but in in removing that and focusing on the deeper meaning, but still having the fun of Santa Claus and the fun of the gifts and all of that, he felt good as a father in the, in the idea that he was, you know, folk helping them, helping his family to focus on what matters most at this time of year to a Christian, and that is that this is the birth of Jesus, God incarnate, coming into the world, and all that goes along with that in the gospel message. And he felt good about that. Now, let me just say that with Santa Claus, um, I did the same thing. And my parents did the same thing with me. The reasoning my parents had, and they talked a little bit about this in the show was, number one, you don't want to lie to your kids. Now, we just like Link said, he told his kids they weren't allowed to go and tell the other kids that Santa doesn't exist or whatever. I, uh, likewise, um, was told, don't ruin it for the other kids. And I told my kids, don't ruin it for the other kids. But um, but the, re the reason was, number one, I, I didn't want to lie to my kids. It just felt weird. And then number two, the other part of that was, I didn't want to t tell my kids all these things about Santa and then lead them on for years. And then they find out that's not true. And then them not believe me when I tell them what I actually believe is the nature of reality when it comes to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I just, I just didn't see it as a, as a good positive thing, but we still kept all the fun. We, you know, right now Christmas just ended and, and we had a blast and we still talk about Santa and we love going and seeing the lights. Now we're not weirdos that way. All right. We, as I've said many times on this show, we live in the same place 
I mean, we're weirdos in the sense that all Christians are strange and peculiar people living in this world, but we're not, uh, we listen to the same music you do. We see the same movies you do. We live in the same culture you do, and we're not a subculture. Christianity is in a certain sense, in a harmless way, a counterculture, but we're not a subculture, right? So we live in the world you do. We know, uh, we, we enjoy Christmas like everybody else, but at the same time, uh, yeah, I did the same thing as Link. And what I really want you to focus in on here is that Link, uh, Link said that he felt good about this. This felt good. And so I think that's going to be important as we move on. So let's move on to another beautiful thing that happened in his family. And for those of you, I, I can't say that I'm not sad about what happened to Rhett and Link. And so for those of you who are believers, this is going to strike you as a bit sad knowing that they ultimately walked away. Uh, but here's what he says next. We didn't actually have a lot of like Christmas time traditions, um, but we did have some. Like we would read, we would read like from the children's Bible, like the Christmas story from a young age. Um, I've got this video of Lily um, before she could read. She, we had, we had read it to her so much that she had memorized the Christmas story based on this children's picture book. And it was, it's the cutest thing because she would act like she's reading, but she just memorized everything that we said per page. And it, you know, it felt good to know that one of the first things she memorized was the story of, of Jesus humbling himself and coming to earth in order to, be her savior, and you know it's. I it, I just felt like I was do, okay. It's like this is this is my job as dad, and Chrissy's job as mom is is to instill this knowledge in in her at at a young age to to where she knows that God loves her and cares about her and went to great lengths to to not only demonstrate that but to make that to make that relationship possible. You know, so it felt really good. It felt really good. There it is again. Now, what felt really good? The fact that one he said one of the first things that my daughter memorized was the birth narrative, the birth stories. And so uh, about Jesus coming into the world. And, and by the way, I did that too. I, when I was a kid, I had all of Luke 2's birth narrative, not the whole chapter, but all of it to do with the nativity, memorized, completely committed to memory. I could say the whole thing out of the King James. Um, I can still say a lot of it. Uh, but the, the point the point is he was he felt it felt good. Why did it feel good? Because he was teaching his kids something that had meaning. He was teaching them about something that mattered. And man, isn't that beautiful that this little girl who couldn't actually read but had memorized the story was turning the pages and telling the story. And anybody whose kids has had a similar experience. And man, those are some of the best memories I have with my kids. Um, I did it with my oldest daughter Jolie, and I did it with Jolie and Jacqueline when Jack, from the time Jacqueline could sit in there with us. I'd go into their bedroom at night and I'd tell them Bible stories. They didn't want to hear Dr. Seuss. They didn't want to hear something else. We did a lot of that. But no, they wanted to hear the Bible. And so I would tell them Bible stories. And I covered everything, Old Testament and New Testament. For those of you who said, well, you didn't tell them about the slaughter of the Canaanites and you didn't tell them about Joshua and all that. Yeah, I did. I did. We, In fact, we were running around the room. Mom would come in and think we'd lost our mind because I'd be on top of a chair with a coat hanger that'd be a sword and we'd be carrying all these things out and then tell them about Jesus and we'd talk about all that. We went through the whole Bible multiple times. Um, we obviously skipped the sexually explicit stuff that I just don't think they're ready to hear yet. But the fact is, we we did all of that, and it is so meaningful. And so, those are some of the best memories. And Link has those memories, 
We're going to find out what happened with that book later on. But that was when he was teaching his kid the book. And what does he say about the time when he was teaching the book to his kids? It felt good. What did he say about it when he was helping him to focus not on Santa, but on Jesus? He said, it felt good. These are his words, not mine. I'm not trying to like twist this or anything. I'm giving you what he had to say. And I think that is powerful, especially as we see this thing unfold. But there did there were some problems. And here's where we're going to get into a little bit of uh, just for a moment, technical apologetic stuff. But here is where Rhett said, OK, that was what it was like when we were Christians. But then there came this time we were still Christians, but we were doubting Christians. This is like stage two, I think. But let's move on to stage two, right? Because as we've established, uh, that mentality uh, and that approach did not continue. For me, you know, I struggled with doubt pretty much my entire adult life as it related to my Christian faith. But, uh, you know, probably about 15 years ago or so was when the doubts began to get kind of crippling to the point that engaging in like Bible reading as an example would inflame my doubts, right? So if I would go to the Bible to have my doubts addressed, some of the other things that I had read about these particular things would enter my mind and it became this thing where the more sensational the story, the more difficult it was for me to believe. I want you to remember what he just said right there. I want you to remember that he said the more sensational the story, the more difficult it was to believe and how the reading the Bible caused the, these problems. I know there are a lot of atheists uh, out there and just unbelievers in general who are saying, yeah, if you want to make someone not a Christian, have them read the Bible. Um, I just recently put a couple of tweets up from people who were saying that reading they came to Christ because of reading the Bible. So uh, per- perhaps that goes both ways and perhaps it has more to do than w- more to do with what's going on in your head or as much to do with that as it does what's in the Bible. Um, but we believe the gospel uh, is the power of God into salvation, and we believe that uh, reading the Bible is not a bad thing. But there are some things we're going to get to in this in just a few moments before this video is done that I think will turn this whole thing on its head. But I don't want to interrupt the flow here too much, so let's get back to what he has to say. And I feel like the Christmas story kind of brings together a lot of different elements, right? So you've got some things that are, let's just be honest, difficult to believe, virgin birth, the idea that there's a star that is settling over the town of Bethlehem that is leading the wise men to the town, which seems to indicate that the, 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 the authors didn't really understand the nature of stars and how far away they actually are and how that's not how stars work. Um, or maybe it was a special star that was just happened for this. I, I, listen, I'm, everything that I'm gonna say right now, which is, where, is sort of like my doubts that I have about the story, I am well aware that, uh, there are plenty of evangelical traditional Christian explanations for all these things. I'm not discounting those. I'm just saying that for me, when I engage with the Christmas story from a historical perspective and some of the issues that there are there, you know, related to like this, you know, the Herod and the governor of Syria, Quirinius, or the census and these things that like you can kind of call into question from a historical perspective and the way that they line up, or the fact that the, the Christmas story, the nativity story is kind of added to, um, you know, Luke, and Matthew, but it's not in the earliest gospel, the the book of Mark. So it kind of lends itself to this idea that the legend of Jesus was growing as time went by. And so they were adding things like, hey, we got let's add this story that shows how he fulfilled prophecy. Again, this is the secular view of these things. Um, 
And I began to see some of those answers and some of those explanations to those difficult passages less as a good answer and more as what felt like this is, seems more desperate, right? This does, it's not satisfying to me. Okay, now <clears throat> I can't speak to what's satisfying to him because that's a subjective thing, but in just a few moments, I'm gonna give you a couple of examples of how people have responded to some of those criticisms and you tell me whether they think they're desperate. Again, that's a subjective thing and if they aren't desperate, um, but you think they're desperate, well, I, I can't really help that. That's a matter of subjective opinion. But I'm going to show you and you can make up your mind because I don't think they sound desperate at all. But let's let him finish here. So when I would engage with the story, I would be thinking about all those things. It's like I'm thinking about the the critical view of this story, which is not a fun way to engage with a story, right? Mm. And so Christmas became a time where I was kind of of two minds, right? There was some serious cognitive dissonance going on because there was a real appreciation for the idea of Christmas and the idea that God would become one of us and would make that connection in a way that I had not seen demonstrated in any other faith system, right? Um, And there was all the stuff that went along with it and those songs that we sang from that album that I can't remember, um, they were, incredibly meaningful, even in the middle of my severe doubt about these things, when I would read the story and these doubts would be inflamed, I could still move on to singing the song, singing the hymns, thinking about Jesus, uh, and it would be very moving and very impactful. But there was a, a few, a good number of years there where the doubts were so strong that engaging with the story of Christmas was a bit of a train wreck inside my my mind. Okay, so that's where we've got to with him now. He's gotten to this point where he's got all these doubts. He's read some material that tries to answer some of the alleged problems in, say, the Gospels. And so as a result, he's looking at this. He sees some supernatural stuff that he finds difficult to believe. He sees some historical stuff that he finds difficult to square. He's heard what Christian apologists and scholars have to say to that. He finds it to be desperate. Um, Well, the idea that let's talk about the miraculous stuff for just a minute. He says the more sensational the story the more difficult to believe. Well, in a certain sense, of course, obviously the more sensational any story is, the more difficult it is to believe, but is it reasonable to believe it? Is it something that we should believe given um, uh, what else we know uh, about the, 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 the documents that give these to us, the surrounding um, culture, these kind of things, the, the evidence we have for bigger claims that are actually in those gospels, like the resurrection, which is the biggest claim in the gospels, and whether that's true, because I think we can make a case for that, Uh, But let's leave some of those. I'm going to talk about the star. He talked about the star that guided the Magi there. We're going to talk about that for just a moment. But the virgin birth and other miraculous details, I want to save those for just a moment. And we're going to talk about those toward the end because he says something toward the end that I think squares really poorly with his claim that those are too sensational to be believed, at least by him, given other things that he does believe. And we're going to come back to that because that's kind of in a certain sense going to be, I think, the most important thing in this video. Uh, But that said, let's talk a little bit about some of these things. So when it comes to the star, um, he says this seems to illustrate that the people uh, of the time uh, that wrote this didn't have an understanding of how far away those stars were and all the things that we know about these stars and all that sort of thing. Yeah, 
I, I have no reason to think. I mean, certainly they didn't, right? <laughs> of course they didn't. Um, and and that's I, I don't know what that seems trivially true. But uh, what can we say about this star issue? Is it is it all that bizarre? Um, first of all, if it's just a miracle, you know, he he seems to put that in there as if that would be desperate. Like, well, okay, maybe this is a special thing. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Bible is a book that contains the acts of God. And when he comes incarnate into humanity, the idea that there would be some uh, miraculous stuff going on isn't strange. Some divine things happening, some supernatural things. That's not weird at all. I mean, um, this this comes in a book where there's other supernatural things happening. So you, you don't have to believe it, but it's certainly not surprising or desperate if that happens to be what the authors are trying to tell you is that something incredible and supernatural and miraculous happened. However, in Craig Keener's, um, well, in the IVP background, Bible background commentaries that goes into some of the socio rhetorical stuff and some of the background information that you wouldn't get just just from just reading the Bible necessarily. Um, Craig Keener, who wrote that uh, volume for IVP, he says about the star stuff. He says, Astronomers have offered various proposals for the appearance of the star in the first decade BC. The ancients thought comets and falling stars predicted the fall of rulers. Some emperors even banished from Rome astrologers who issued such predictions. By this period, many Jewish people accepted the idea that, st that the stars could accurately predict the future. Even though these magi were pagans, God had chosen to reveal himself to them. So that's one of the amazing things about the story and something we see about the nature of God. God is um, he he's giving a sign to these guys. Um, they happen to be guys that look up into the sky for pagan reasons. And he gives them a sign that way because that's the way they're going to be looking for a sign. Practical, right? He goes on to say, many rulers feared astrological signs of their demise. The Emperor Nero later reportedly slaughtered many nobles in the hope that their deaths rather than his own would fulfill the prediction of a comet. The text might, in fact, he, go, he says this now, keep this in mind. The text might imply only that the star appeared to move due to the Magi's own movement. And when you're moving, it looks like a star is moving because of your movement, perhaps. Even had the object been close enough to Earth to calculate its relation to Bethlehem, Bethlehem was so close to Jerusalem that any distance would have been negligible unless the object was only a mile high. But the description of God's leading the Magi by a moving supernatural sign may recall how God had led his own people by the fire and cloud in the wilderness. So there you've got a couple of explanations for this thing, but on top of that, and a little bit of background on how this sort of thing was viewed at the time, but on on top of that, it's also important to mention that what if it was just a, I mean, this is how I've always taken it, just a supernatural light that God put in the sky that to the people writing this best described as a star, that's not misleading. And this is, and, and it supernaturally guided them to uh, the Messiah. That to me, in a, in a book where we're not trying, the goal of a theologian, the goal of a Bible scholar, the goal of a textual critic is not to go through like the Jesus seminar who he he brings up the Jesus seminar in this video, and he says that you know when he was looking at the Bible around Christmas time, he'd have these things from the Jesus seminar come into his mind. And it's not that there aren't uh, good scholars in the Jesus seminar. The point is that one of their guiding principles in writing a book like the Five Gospels is to 
remove the idea like if jesus you know they went through the and and assigned beads colored beads like um if jesus almost certainly did say something i think that gets like a red bead and then there's like a pink bead and then if we don't know at all whether jesus said this or did this it gets a white bead and then it goes all the way to the other end black being we we don't think we almost certainly jesus didn't say this and one of their guiding principles has to do with the supernatural or the politically correct or things like this that's not how you would do something like this that's just the wrong way to go about it so anyway, um, uh, there, if it is a miracle, the job of a scholar or a textual critic is not to go through and try to explain away all the miraculous. It's to try and understand what the author was trying to tell you. And if the author is trying to tell us that supernaturally, miraculously, this happened, well, that may that that does that's not a historical problem. Now that may go into the miracle problem. There's nothing. The point is, there's nothing contradictory or uh, that sits poorly in the story about this. It, it, it doesn't go in that bucket. It goes in another bucket. The bucket it goes into is the bucket of it seems too sensational to be believed. And we're going to come back to that again because of the miraculous later on, as I said. But um, uh, what about this issue with Quirinius? Now, that's something that he brings up. Quirinius, the governor of Syria during the census, that is understood to be a difficulty in the Bible, that there are many people who have, who have talked about this and written about this, and there are various explanations for it. Here's something that I want you to understand, and we're going to listen to what Daryl Bach has to say about this. Daryl Bach is the senior research professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. But before we go to Daryl Bach to answer that question, um, as uh, as an expert in the field, it's important to understand that when historians are looking at a thing, they're not looking to discount it. They're not looking to affirm it, but they are going to look at, okay, is there a plausible explanation that seems workable with this, or is it just wrong? Well, in this case, there is a plausible explanation. I think there are various ways, but this is the sort of thing, I take it, that he thinks sounds desperate. Now, tell me if you think this de sounds desperate. First of all, Daryl Bach's going to lay out what the problem is supposed to be, according to some people, and then he's going to give what he thinks is uh, uh, a possible explanation. By the way, I think I may have edited this clip just a little bit because he goes off on a bit of a rabbit trail. And at the same time, uh, I've edited some of the clips from Rhett and Link, but I don't think in a way that's unfaithful to their intent or what they're trying to say. They just joke around a lot, so it made sense to, to edit some of that. But here's Daryl Bach, and here's what he has to say. The, and the argument goes like this. Quirinius, we know, was, was ruler in A.D. 6. That's too late to represent Jesus' birth and be the explanation for why Mary and Joseph have come south from uh, Nazareth down into Judea, into Bethlehem. And that is certainly correct. Josephus doesn't give us any indication of an earlier census or anything like that. So we do have a historical anomaly here at this point uh, that is much discussed. Now, we know that when Luke refers to the idea of there being a census being taken in all the world from Augustus, that actually what Augustus did is he didn't, he didn't institute an uh, empire-wide census, but he, he instituted a variety of censuses in specific locations moving from place to place as he gradually took the census of the empire. We know that as well. Uh, my own solution is to say this way, that Augustus got organized to take this census. This census took place somewhere between 6 and 4 BC, or at least the beginning mechanizations of it. But it wasn't actually executed until we got to Quirinius. In other words, he's the one who took the data, put it together, presented it for Rome, and Rome actually began to make use of it for taxation under Quirinius. So this is a long process. I like to make the analogy of uh, when they build a major freeway in a city, 
Sometimes it takes a while between the planning of the freeway and the actual building of the freeway and the completion of the freeway. There's a freeway here in Dallas, Central Expressway, it was 30 years from the planning to the completion of the exercise. Uh, and so uh, my own take is, is that this, this census became associated with Quirinius because he's the one who completed it, but he wasn't the one who was responsible for starting it. All right, so there you have an explanation that I think is based on some historical information we have about how this was this uh, how uh, these censuses were ha handled, these censuses were handled, and it is perfectly plausible. I mean, unless you need there to be a problem there, which I don't take Rhett to be functioning that way. Unless you need there to be a problem there, th this is as plausible as that it's just wrong. I, I don't I don't see the at least that plausible. I, I just don't see a, a problem with that. Now we're going to come back to another possibility for that in just uh, toward the end of the video as it relates to Quirinius and and larger things in general. Um, that that would be even more uh, hospitable to the notion that I think Rhett is getting at here. But there's one other thing that he lays out, and that is the fact that this doesn't appear, the nativity story doesn't appear in Mark. Um, it does in Matthew and Luke uh, in various ways, uh, two different takes, and then, um, or two different uh, explanations of different things. And then it's not in John. Now, he doesn't mention this, but it's not in John either. Now, John is taken by scholars to be written after these, and yet it doesn't include it. Well, why? Well, because Matthew and Luke were already in circulation and already known, and John doesn't need to cover that material. Um, likewise, Mark may just not have needed to cover that material or wanted to cover that material for a variety of reasons. Mark uh, is getting to the point, uh, he's, he's cutting out a lot of things, just getting right to the heart of the matter. Now, this idea that it, it, it goes to this legend building sort of a thing. Well, if John came first and Mark came last, we wouldn't even be talking about Mark He'd be saying, well, what about John? Or somebody would be saying, what about John? That John doesn't uh, do a nativity story. Well, see, you can you can play this either way. I mean, it's it's like, come on. And secondly, uh, it's also important to note that um, that uh, that you can look at particular stories in, in the Gospels and you can arrange them in other ways to where it looks like they developed toward Mark, which we know isn't the case. We take Mark in priority. So I just don't, you know, that sort of thing just, I mean, it's like with any of, with all of these things, uh, the miracle stuff and whether you just can't take it because it seems too um, sensational. Okay. We're, like I said, we're going to get back to that, but I can't do much for that at this moment. We will later, but with the historical stuff, there's just not necessarily a problem there. And there's nothing desperate about um, providing these very plausible explanations. I, I just don't get it. Um, but whether it's actually desperate and whether you view it as desperate are two completely different things. And I, I don't say that because I think that Rhett is trying to view it uncharitably. Again, I don't think so. I think he was looking for the answers whenever he was uh, still a Christian and, and still in the church and looking for those things. And now he comes back and says something about music, getting back to Rhett and Link, that I think is pretty important. Music kind of transcends um, the intellectual doubts that you might have, you know, and you're dealing with the stuff that's kind of up here in your, your headspace and there's this rational sort of battle that's happening. Your music con connects with your soul in, in, in a different way. That, and this is why I can still listen, e even today, and don't consider myself a Christian, I can listen to, uh, you know, Be Thou My Vision, one of my favorite hymns, and hear it cry you know what i'm saying like um so i, I yeah there's something that transcends that mental barrier in, in music anyway 
So I think that was, and I think it keeps, honestly, it keeps people around for longer. Yeah, it keeps people around for longer. Now, now he says at some point uh, something about, you know, you, you can you can put aside all this mental, you know, the, the rational side of it and, and recognize the transcendence of music and how that connects with you. Yes, but those are not necessarily two different things. I don't see why those need to be disconnected as you. Uh, we're going to come back to this again in a moment, but there's something about experiencing God. Um, directly through music when you, you have that, that the soul of music. And of course, I, I've said this before, I think that our brains uh, experience some interesting things whenever we are um, in a state of worship or at, say, a Coldplay concert or whatever. I think that our brains are wired. It's interesting that they have that capacity that when we are swaying or, or we're clapping and we're all singing in harmony together like that in a big gr corporate group, that there is something that actually happens in our brain that makes us feel connected um, and all these kind of things. That that happens outside of just worship services in other realms of life um, just tells me that God designed our brains such that they would be wired up for worship. I, I don't see that as a problem for my world view and there is something tran that, that transcends music does seem to transcend he's absolutely right but that doesn't that's a piece of phenomenon about the human experience that has to be explained it's not unimportant if you're experiencing god in music whether you think of it now that way or not that's that experience what is happening to us in music doesn't seem to need to be there but it is there somehow and what's all that about it's like someone else said recently some agnostic i was responding to said it's 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 like that didn't need to be in the universe why does the universe have that phenomenon in it right the first thing that we have access to is our experiences and so it's not irrational to include thoughts about our experience in our construction of worldview and what's actually going on. So I don't think that, I mean, clearly he's saying there's something important and meaningful about that, but I don't think it's disconnected from the discussion of the logic and rational thinking and all those kinds of things. On top of that, I think it's important that he, he mentions a song that even now as someone who he says does not identify as a Christian, he can still tear up listening to the song, the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Now that's interesting. And I can't psychoanalyze Rhett and Link beyond what they give me in their own words. But I did think it would be helpful to take a look at the lyrics to the song, Be Thou My Vision. And notice, Rhett has already in this talked about the experiential side of his relationship with God. He's talking now about the experience of music, and he will talk more about experiencing God later on, even where he's at right now in his, in his walk. And so that personal interaction with God. I want you to notice how much that is reflected in the lyrics of Be Thou My Vision. It says, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great father and I thy true son. Thou in me dwelling and I with thee one. Riches I heed not nor vain empty praise. Thou my inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High king of heaven, my treasure thou art. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joy, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. That's powerful. And notice in those lyrics, 
just from what Rhett has said, there is a belief in the possibility of connecting in some way with God that is ineffable and personal and beautiful. This song resonates because it is deeply personal and experiential. And I think that is so reflective of what we get from Rhett in this, this whole thing. Now, let's move on for just a moment and let's take a look at what they found once they did move into stage three, where they no longer identified as Christians, because I think, I think that is where we are now. Where I was like, okay, it's official. I don't, I don't believe this anymore. Like I, I just, I'm, I cannot, mm-hmm. I cannot honestly call myself a Christian. I'm not going to pursue this. I'm not going to engage with this. I'm not going to go to church anymore. You know, it wasn't that clean, but there was a point in which that was who I became. But you still got Christmas rolling around every single year, right? And it's weird. It's weird when you have like, hey, we've been doing this every year and it's been just saturated in meaning. It's been saturated in the most uh, sort of consequential and important meaning that it could possibly have. And now you're just gonna become one of those guys that's just getting through the Christmas season on some good tidings from the Christmas movies. For somebody who's had a really deep spiritual experience, um, those Christmas movies, again, Elf, great movie, doesn't cut it. It, 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 if you've had that depth of experience. Yeah, God is not a character. <laughs> Will Ferrell is awesome, but he is not God. And so it's like you come to that time and there's this like, man, the depth of experience and the depth that this that this had associated with it that permeated my life personally, but also permeated the lives of my wives and children Watch out, man. (laughs) My wife and children, our family, that's an easier way to say it, it's not there. Yeah. How do you engage with that? I think about the realization that that children's book that we had, you know, it's like one, one, one year you pull down the Christmas decorations and the Christmas books and like that book that Lily memorized that you read with Lincoln some when he was younger. Um, that like you realize that like it's you can't find it in the box anymore, or I don't remember ever deciding to not pull it out of the box or not to read it to Lando. But it's like, yeah, it's just kind of like you realize, you know what? I Lando never read this book. That you know, that is, I mean, on one level, really gut wrenching. You know, if you're a Christian, I get it. These guys aren't Christians, but I'm I'm just saying. First of all, what did Rhett say? Rhett said the the accoutrement, the the uh, Christmas movies, the happy slappy. You know, we're going to try to keep the presents and all the other good stuff that goes along and the being together and all that. It didn't cut it. Will Ferrell didn't cut it. The Christmas movies didn't cut it. The the meaning that I had had before, the the experience that I had before, isn't there, and you can't replicate it. We're left with Wilson, right? We're left with the volleyball Wilson, not a real person. The meaning has been ripped out of it, and now it is a soulless shell of what it once was, even if it's still fun, you know? Uh, Volleyballs are fun, I guess. But that is interesting that he recognizes that once he's not a Christian anymore. And then we go to Link, and Link says the book. 
I taught the book to my first kid and it was beautiful. I felt good about it, but I taught it less to my second kid. And now the third kid, I can't even find the book. What happened to the book? That is powerful and followed with this thing that he says next, which I think is very honest and very telling. There's still this residual in the back of my mind, I think. Um, I, I I guess I would just call it, there's, there's, a, there's an experience of guilt. It's like, because there's this question. It's like when you let, as you put it in, in your story, you, you jump ship, you let go of something, but you don't have anything specific to grasp onto. It's like, I'm not, we're not now, you know, as, ascribing to some other religious belief system. Well, and I, and, 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 and but so I, I do think for, for me, there is a bit of, yeah, it's like, oh, did we, did I make the right decision? Did we, did we as a family make a right decision? You know, it's like, there's these little questions. It's like, I, you know, I've tried my, my best to embrace uncertainty as as a positive but there's still moments of struggle and i think it 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 happens more around the holidays when you realize that like something that was extremely meaningful um and a practice that you have with your with your first child is not part of what happens with your third child and are are they missing out you know is is you know have we done them a disservice and then I have to, I, I kind of have to rederive what brought what brought me to this point, and also look at our children and how tremendously fabulous they are, and how proud I am of them, and start to just have this reality check that, like, okay, these feelings of guilt uh, or obligation. Sometimes I, w- I, I think I, I would describe it as I'm feeling judged by my former self. Yeah. <clears throat> so he says he f- he's feeling judged by his former self. Now, I, I want to look at that for a second. So here is Rhett's situation. He says he feels guilty um, sometimes. And he wonders, did I do the wrong thing? Maybe I did the wrong thing. Maybe I led my family astray, which are all real things that, that parents have to think about. And um, here is his situation now from his own lips. Okay. From their lips. And I'm not. I, I may cross pollinate from Rhett to Link, but I, but I think this is this is where at least Link is at. The meaning, a lot of the meaning is gone, right? That they got sucked out of that. Which you know, this new thing isn't getting it done. And Rhett said that. It seems like Link agrees that, that there's some sense of meaning that is gone. The doubt is still there. He's still doubting. Did I do the right thing? Where's this guilt coming from? What's going on? The doubt is still there, at least to some degree. Um, added to it is guilt. And worry that he's led his family astray. Now, I want you to, and I'm not trying to read this uncharitably. I want you to notice how this has happened. What did he say about his kids telling his kids that Santa Claus wasn't real so they could focus on Jesus? It felt good. It felt good. It felt right. I felt like I was doing the right thing. How did it feel whenever his daughter memorized Luke 2? What happened? It felt good. I felt good about that book. I felt good about my daughter knowing that one of the first stories she memorized was about her savior. I felt good. Now on this side, how does he feel? He feels guilty. Meaning is gone. The doubt is still there. And he worries that he's led his family astray, at least sometimes. Now, a couple of things. 
first of all, he says in the longer video, which again is linked down in the description, he says, it's not like my life is terrible. It's not like we don't have fun at the holidays. It's not, he's not saying that, but these are things we glean from what he is saying now about his change. And I know he's probably, if, if you see this link, I know you're probably looking at this thinking, oh, I knew somebody was going to say exactly this. Darn right. And maybe don't dismiss it as, well, that's what a Christian apologist would say. But as one guy talking to another, maybe this is, maybe this is worth pointing out that this has happened. And another, and another thing that I want to say is if you're a skeptic out there, you might think, well, he only feels all those things because he was indoctrinated and he was wired into it. And thank goodness he didn't get to indoctrinate his kids further. Link points out in the video, I want to be clear, the evangelical church didn't do this to me. I did this to me. This is me. And he says, so I feel like my former self is judging my current self. Maybe. I certainly know what it's like to look at myself when I was 20 from this vantage point or 25 and think at that time I was in many ways a better person than I am now. And I looked, I thought at that point that me now by the age I am now that I would be much closer to God. I would have my stuff together so much more than I currently do. And, uh, and in some ways I admire the me that's on the other side of the divide back at 2025. Um, and, and, you know, with, with link, maybe that is happening. Maybe when he thinks about how his younger self would view him, he sees that, but on a deeper level, second Corinthians chapter seven, and I know it doesn't do any good to quote scripture to unbelievers, but it might do some good to quote scripture to these unbelievers. The second Corinthians chapter seven talks about a godly sorrow, a sorrow that comes on you that is from God and it works repentance in your life. And it's a good thing. It doesn't feel good, but it's a good thing. And I would say to Link, yes, what you're saying could be consistent with um, this is just what you used to believe coming back to haunt you. But it's also consistent with the Bible seems to indicate that when something like this happens, something like that will happen. And that is perfectly consistent with Christianity. And when I look at a person who's telling me it felt good when I was raising my kids in the faith, it felt good when I was making sure Jesus was still the center of everything we did around the holidays and thereby perhaps in our lives. And now what is, what is it like? Meaning is gone. Doubt is there. Guilt is added and worry that I'm leading my family astray, at least occasionally. In other words, it feels bad. Not, not that your life is terrible or you don't still have a good time or you're doing okay. I get it. But it feels bad compared to before when it felt good. That's what I got. Now, someone can maybe get real specific and say, well, no, he's saying that specific thing felt good of, of his kid reading the book, or, or, but not that his life in general felt good. There were probably other things that weren't good. Maybe. The point I'm saying is, as it relates to his family and faith, it felt good before. It does not feel good now. Another thing I want to point out is the doubt is still there. Now, it doesn't seem like it was there for Rhett. Rhett comes back on, he says, guilt's not my thing. I, that, that, that's not really where I'm at. And maybe not everybody, but here's something. I want you to recognize that for a great many people, and I tell people this all the time, you, if you take the plunge and you walk away, it's not as though this doubt is going to go away. People have this mental angst, this existential crisis and trust me, the skeptical community is going to be very happy to tell you, oh, that's because of indoctrination and all that kind of stuff. But let me just tell you, the doubt does not necessarily go away, depending on you and what kind of person you are and, and how close you are to God and all those kind of things. The doubt doesn't necessarily go away. Even given years, it doesn't necessarily go away. In fact, where before you had doubt, but you were in, 
Now you have doubt and you're on the outside and it's compounded by all these other things that, that Link listed out. So jumping ship to alleviate that doubt does not necessarily alleviate that doubt and it will make it worse. If for nothing else, because now look what's at stake. Eternal life, heaven and hell, all these things are at stake. Your family, what are you doing to them? These are all important things. You say, well, you're fear baiting this. No more than I would tell someone who's a chronic smoker that they need to quit because they'll get cancer is if they didn't already know or could get cancer, right? I'm not doing it to fear you into submission. What I'm doing is saying there are ramifications to this belief system if Christianity is true. And for people who are open and searching, that's an important message to hear. And unless you're ready to demonstrate to me that it's false, and many of the people who think they're ready to demonstrate that aren't anywhere near ready, unless you're ready to demonstrate to me that it's false, then it's dangerous for you to get involved in that and say, oh, that's just wiring. That's just indoctrination when you don't know that for sure. And you can't be certain of it um, on a Cartesian level for sure. Uh, so I think that's all important to, to grasp with this. It was good before. It's not good in that way now. All right, let's move on to the next thing where we find something else from Rhett and what he says. Phase four. Um, I actually personally, again, this is not prescriptive. I'm not saying this for anybody else. This is for me. I actually do find phase three to be inadequate for me personally. So the idea that Christmas is just about those things, just about the give, the giving and the receiving and the uh, the good tidings and great joy unrelated to Jesus, just the secular side of things, just watching Elf or seeing Tim Allen be Santa again. I do find those things to be inadequate. Like I don't, I didn't want to be stuck at phase three. Yeah. So, so the secular side of things, according to Rhett is inadequate. Why? We take him to be meaning because it because there's this whole issue about meaning that's not there that I did experience. Now, I, I don't know when it comes somewhere in here. I, I think he uh, speaks as though that, 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 you know, he could have gone full rational and like uh, dropped the experiential side. But he's not that he doesn't think that's the right thing for him. But understand that, that there is a phenomenon. He's saying I take him to be saying there is a phenomenon I used to experience that I don't experience now. And this doesn't make sense of it. It doesn't make sense of the human experience. And uh, but what he describes can doesn't need to unnecessarily bifurcate the, the, the rational and the logical from the experiential. There, this can be made sense of in a perfectly epistemologically legitimate way. And that is to say, the first thing, if we're talking about human experience and anthropology, the thing that we have the most direct access to is our experience. That's what we experience, right? That's, that's the first evidence we have. And to say, I used to experience something, I know I did, it was real, it was legitimate, it was deeper than all of this other stuff, and it was meaningful, and it had Jesus. Um, I don't have that now. That is, it is not illogical to say my worldview should account for all of this, all of these pieces of data. And that's a pretty fat piece of data that we've got to account for. And my secular position right now isn't accounting for it. What happened to what I used to experience? And so uh, we're going to move on and see more of what he's, what did he do about that? Because he did something about it. It's not over. 
something within me got the okay to be like, all right, you can move on now. You don't have to be in this place that's just a guy who used to be a Christian and doesn't believe that stuff anymore and that's who you are. You can actually move forward to whatever's next for you from a spiritual perspective. And one of the things that has happened and this is, I don't know where, I don't know exactly where it's all going spiritually for me, but I said him when I told my story that I had an openness and I did. I have an openness, I did and I ha- and I do currently have an openness towards um, spiritual things. And one of the interesting things that, interesting again, one of the things that has happened is sort of a re-engaging with the person of Jesus in a completely different way. When we look at the story of Christmas uh, from a Christian perspective, um, you're right. It's God emptying himself, becoming a baby. Again, I don't know how this works. Um, I don't actually believe that's what was happening, but according to the story, becomes becomes a baby, becomes sort of the, the complete 100% God, 100% human, that then is the only sacrifice that can be made in order to reconcile everyone who will call on the name of the Lord to God, right? But isn't there a different way to, isn't there something else to appreciate without that having to be true, right? For instance, because since you mentioned this exact thing, because I was thinking about this earlier, I don't know the nature of God. I don't necessarily know anyone can understand, grasp, or know, or talk about in in a understandable way the nature of God. I think that there are, if there is a God, um, there's probably an experience of that God is is somewhat ineffable, meaning you cannot communicate it in a way that would make sense because it's happening in a different place on a different level in a different way than human language can express. But the idea that God would want to be so close and so involved in so much a part of humanity that he would become one of us is a beautiful concept that makes me think about the nature of God in an open and edifying way. Does that make sense? It doesn't have to have happened as described for me to be like that in the way, I'm glad we talked about music. It wasn't that I didn't know this was gonna happen, but a song resonates with you. It's there's something about on a soul level. There's something about music that you connect with, and you wouldn't say that song is true and that song is false, but you would be like, this song, I feel like I begin to actually resonate and synchronize with this music because it connects with my soul and this doesn't. I feel like that can happen with a story as well. And so for me, there are elements of that idea because I mean, if anything, if there, if the, the concept of God being in everything and God being available within someone and the idea, and, you know, the universe, the fabric of the universe, being whatever you wanna call it, that's something that's still very intriguing to me that I wanna be open to and I wanna lean into and I feel like I can find that in the story of Christmas. That's all I'm saying. So, um, first of all, if you're out there and you're a Christian and you're thinking, yeah, but you can't just do that with the story. You can't just, they actually, in the video, you know, Link comes back with, well, 
if if I was still a Christian, what I'd have been, what the old me would have been saying to you is, who do you think you are to decide how you're going to come to Jesus? There's a way to understand and come to Jesus, and you don't get to just decide and pick and choose from the Bible what you like and all this hippie stuff and blah blah blah. So they're very aware of that. That that's that's the thing that's interesting about the, this is that they're aware of that. Also, what is damaging about this, um, I think, without, without any intent to insult anyone, that that's what's uh, a problem here. But he says that the way he dealt with this was once he no longer needed to account for everything, like, how do I know this is true sort of thing, then what it left him with was an ability to look at the person of Jesus in a new way, not be sidetracked with that stuff and and see some, some deeper stuff there. And to find out that the story can be true in the sense that a song can resonate with you, whether or not it's the song isn't true or false. It's just, but it, but it does resonate with you. And a story can be like that, whether the details of the story are true or fiction. Um, he said he dropped the need to account for that, but there's, there's a, I think that there is that same thing that he wants to achieve can be done in an intellectually legitimate way and doesn't do that doesn't do such pointless damage to the faith. And that's to say something like, okay, I'm experiencing severe doubt right now. Maybe inerrancy is a problem for him and inerrancy is very important to me, but he could say something like what aspects of the story do historians think is historically likely and does Christianity still hold up? I've said many times on this show, if God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead, Christianity is true, period. And all of this stuff about God could have raised Jesus to trick you and it could have been aliens and blah, blah, blah. No, I, I'm, I'm not interested in that. I, I'm, I'm not interested in ways to wiggle out of what the truth actually is. I'm looking for what is most likely to be true. And if God exists and God raises Jesus from the dead, then Christianity is most likely true. Um, all this stuff about inerrancy and all these other things are important issues to talk about, but that's not the first place, you know, that's not the Christianity could still be true. Even if there were errors in the Bible, in other words, even if I came away, not able to validate or defend certain aspects of it, what if I stopped worrying about that? Kind of like he says, what if I stopped worrying about whether anything in the story is true? What if I stopped worrying about it being like inerrant and everything being perfect? but didn't ditch the baby like literally with the bathwater. You could get something akin to what he describes here, as well as some of the, some of the ways that God intended to get, in other words, parts of the story would still be true. That even if you didn't think all of it was true and you could still get God exists and God raised you from the dead. And then I would still want to talk to him about the inerrancy thing and how best to understand that and how to do that. But I'm just saying, why go all the way that he did to, I doesn't matter if any of this is true. That doesn't seem to be right. Daryl Bach. So, so uh, with what I just said about what if you just said, okay, I'm not going to concern myself with whether it's inerrant or whether all the details of the story are true. A history book could have errors in it and still be more or less true. What, what would, uh, what, what if he did think about that with some of these issues? Let's go back to Daryl Bach talking about Quirinius and the census again and see him ponder that possibility. The, and the argument goes, of course, the other question could be, it's conceivable, conceivable that Luke has this kind of a detail wrong. It's conceivable. Um, and yet that still doesn't impact the fact that people would know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem or that he had Bethel Bethlehemic roots. Uh, certainly if the early church went around suggesting that Jesus was born in Bethlehem when he wasn't at all, these works are written in an early enough time that people would have been likely to have known that and that would have been a problem historically to present it otherwise. 
In other words, even if you had to give up inerrancy for some reason, why give up the whole story? You could still be a Christian and see that there were some things you couldn't resolve, or at least that you couldn't defend, or you didn't know how to answer, or something like that. Even if you didn't want to give up inerrancy, I just don't. I just don't know why he has to go all the way. Are some things about the experience of God ineffable? Yes, of course, He's God. Don't see a problem there. The interest he has in actually really connecting with God is actually great. It gives me hope, but it also reveals some problems with his criticism. All right, so this last thing we're going to look at, one last clip from them. And I think Rhett gives us something here that turns this whole thing on its head. Ultimately, what I'm saying is I have found it to be especially free, <clears throat> freeing to take that uh post-enlightenment, human has to figure everything out, hat off, and be like, what is it like to engage with God in the way that I would engage with the ocean? You know, I don't go into the ocean and ride a wave and preoccupy myself with the physics of what's happening. I just do it. I just experience it, right? And I think if there is a God, that God is probably like that. Okay, first of all, what he's describing about not worrying to, to like figure it all out, but just to go with it is probably how most Christians already interact with God and live their Christian lives. Um, and, and you could be a Christian and, and do that. I, I think you should want to go deeper and should want to understand as best you can the nature of God and strive to do that. And, and I think he would, he, I don't know that he would disagree with that in principle. Um, but again, what do we see here? The notion that it's really possible that one can engage with God. Uh, so he, he seems to think either it's likely that God exists or it's at least not unreasonable to think that God exists and that you could personally interact with him. Even as someone would interact with a wave, right? You just experience it. He believes that it is not unreasonable to accept that there is a God and that one could personally have an experience with that God. That God would be necessarily part of what we mean by God in this way is the creator of the universe, right? It's not unreasonable to take a position like that. Now, I've experienced what he's talking about, the, 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 the experience of, of God, I think, in that way. But here's the thing. It does bring out the point that, that, that I think turns his whole thing about it's too sensational. Some of these things in the story are too sensational to be believed. It brings out this point that you believe, Rhett, you believe there is, or at least likely is, or it's reasonable to believe that God could create the universe and all that's in it, and that God may wish to interact with you personally, and yet you think, it seems, not trying to put words in your mouth, this sounds a little bit accusatory, but I want this point to be driven home. Yet you think that to cause a virgin to become pregnant or what one might describe as a star was used to guide some men through the desert is too sensational for this immense, mysterious, ineffable creator, God. Let that sink in. 
If one thinks the story of the nativity is a stretch, it is far less a stretch than the notion that a God could create all that exists from universes to galaxies to fundamental particles, but couldn't ensure Mary conceives without sex. That's a stretch. This turns the whole thing on its head. It, it reveals, I think, that if you think it's at least reasonable to assume that God could have that God could exist and personally want to engage with you, but couldn't ensure that Mary gets pregnant without sex or put a light in the sky. Um, that's really sits oddly. I think, I think you should give yourself permission to go back to what seemed to you sensational when you already, but the truth is already sensational. The, the truth you already believe in is sensational. We live in a world, even if you don't believe in God, where quantum physics exists and quantum indeterminacy and entanglement, there are already pretty sensational things out there that we don't completely understand. In the end, here are the things I hope you take away from this video. There are four. Number one, within Christianity, there was meaning and raising children to recognize and take part in that meaning was good and it felt good. Two, without Christianity, there was no meaning or little meaning, and it all felt as hollow as they suspected when they were Christians that it would. At least for link number three, it led to feeling guilty, losing meaning, continued doubt, and worry that he had led his family astray, at least sometimes. Again, recognizing doesn't mean his whole life is messed up or bad or anything. I'm just saying this is what it led to. And four, for Rhett, it led back to the story of Jesus in hopes of exploring an experience of God that is sensational without a story that is sensational. And I don't think that works. In the end, I'll say what I've said before uh, in, the, in the first video that I did to Rhett and Link, if you hear this. I hope none of this comes across as angry. I really love you guys. Uh, I consider myself a mythical beast, a fan of your show. Um, I do call. I do want you to come back. I call you to come back. And if you reach out to me, I will be happy to communicate with you. You can email me at Braxton at TrinityRadio.org. And it doesn't have to be public. And I don't ever have to mention it publicly. It doesn't have to be a thing like that. I, I'm not wanting to do that to get famous. I'm wanting to talk to you as someone who admires uh, your show and your content and cares about you. Because in the end, what I'd ultimately love is for you to tear up at be thou my vision because the meaning that is there has been fully brought back on your life because you believe the gospel story that you might sing once again with all of the truth and the full meaning taken on board high king of heaven my treasure thou art high king of heaven my victory won may i reach heaven's joys O bright heaven's sun heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all.